and look, for someone who walked in not knowing a thing about what I was going to do, I ended up becoming a global manager for the role. So, in another another organisation. So, I think I did pretty well out of it. This is Property Investory, where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset, and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum, and in this episode, we're speaking with Phil Ferdow, the owner of PV Properties. Ferdow shares his journey from the frosty landscapes of Tasmania, where he pursued an apprenticeship due to his dislike of school in sunny Queensland. There, he embarked on a career that allowed him to travel the world and achieve remarkable goals he never thought was possible. In 2015, Vidal began his thrilling journey into the world of property development while simultaneously pursuing his corporate career. However, it was a pivotal moment in 2018 when he faced corporate redundancy that he seized the opportunity to dive headfirst into property development. I'm the uh, company director and acquisitions uh, lead on in PV Properties. Um, we, we're currently doing uh, purchase land and subdivide into, into livable lots um, across Brisbane, across the greater Brisbane, um, through Logan, Brisbane City Council, Redland and, and Moreton Bay Regional. Um, we have about roughly $34 million in GRV under, on, on the books at the moment um, and we've been growing. Uh, we've been in business now for four years, full time for four years, but doing property development uh, since 2015. At that time, I did my first, executed my first project in 2014, 2015, completed in 2015. Um, and then I went, stayed in the corporate world and kept working in the corporate business. Um, and then, but then did some more learning, did some more education, went to different seminars for some educators and just kept learning more about the process. Um, and then 2019 or 2018, um, the, I lost my job in, in the corporate world, uh, got made redundant um, and then thought now's a great time to get stuck into this in a full-time basis. Fidel's workday is characterized by a diverse range of tasks, making it dynamic and engaging. However, his morning routine provides a stable and predictable start to his day. I tend to get up at about 5 a.m., 5.30 in the morning, go for a walk or, or the gym, one of the two, and then uh, do some, I meditate. Uh, I like to meditate for about 15 to 30 minutes. Um, and then leisurely morning, breakfast, getting ready for reading, do a bit of reading. Um, generally in the office by around about 9am. Um, I spend my day um, looking for projects, looking for sites, dealing with funding, refinancing projects as, as, the, re- as the need requires, um, funding construction, looking, um, managing and coordinating the, uh, the construction side of things with my son. My son works in the business now, so he's looking after pretty much all the project delivery for us uh, and I'm focused on, on, the, um, on the business side of it. Through his work in Queensland, Fidel has witnessed numerous exciting indicators pointing to the potential for rapid growth in Brisbane, driven by a range of dynamic factors. There's a really good signs that Brisbane's ready to boom um, again. So we've got a, a you know really good signs that for the next two years, I think we're we're in for some some pretty pretty rapid growth again. L- a lot like I believe when when we uh, come out of COVID, uh, when when we had a bit of rapid growth there. So I. I there's good signs. Can anyone predict the future? No, no one can. 
but all signs are pointing towards it. Just curious, what, what kind of signs are you seeing that's that's pointing towards that? There's just the way the government, all the government spending, infrastructure spending, we've got the Olympics coming up. So, you know, obviously there's a lot of spending going on there. There's a need for more people. So there's migration coming into Brisbane is is really strong. Uh, in the southeast Queensland is very strong. So there's more, there's a greater need for accommodation. There's a greater need for infrastructure and, and services and the like. So it's just, everything's just sort of piling up on each other to, to give us a, a real solid grounding for new for more growth i can kind of see that because also too you know it's affordable compared to other states as well so there's a lot of migration that's happening especially when COVID happened everyone said why do i need to even live close to the city i can just move out <laughs> now there's some reports that i'm that i'm reading from some people like you know john linderman and others that that i look at and um, they're saying that a lot of those people that moved out some of them are wanting to move back to the cities now so there's there's things that just keep on happening. Migration is is something that's happening, but the international migration that's the biggest one. That one there's there's um, quite a lot of people coming into Australia. Yeah, I noticed that as well too. I mean, specifically, I've just got Airbnb, and uh, a lot of the people that come and visit um, or basically stay at the Airbnb are um, not not necessarily migrants, but just overseas people. So there's still a lot of people coming in, which is really good. So. Even though they say it's very expensive, they still want to come. <laughs> so it's, it's still a, it's still one of the easiest countries in the world to live in. I've I've travelled and in my previous work in corporate world, I've travelled to thirty five countries across, and and this is and for leisure as well. Um, but this is the, by far the easiest country to live in. Fidel's upbringing in Kingston, Tasmania was anything but ordinary as his parents managed a local nursing home. The work ethic of his parents served as a powerful inspiration, motivating not only him but also his siblings to venture into the realm of business. I grew up in um, Kingston in Tasmania. Uh, my parents, um, they came out after the Second World War and moved into um, my dad with his family first. They lived in a little hop, hop hut. Hop Pickers Hut in in southern uh, south of Hobart at Kingston, um, and we grew up there. I got six brothers, uh, so seven of us. We all grew up down in in Hobart. Um, I'll call it Hobart because it's the greater area. Um, and yeah, my, my dad and mum they had a nursing home there. Uh, they're quite um, entrepreneurial and industrious, and um, that's my well, my brothers were all in business one degree or another. Um, yeah, or either working for ourselves on a contract basis or have one of my brothers has got a, um, a software company uh, which sells software all around the world for for, for share, check, tracking shares. So, and we're all we're all in, quite industrious in, in, uh, in business. So. Growing up right next door to the nursing home that his mum and dad ran, Fidel relishes the extraordinary advantages it brought including a constant supply of delicious leftovers. We saw it as normal because they just, they were, it was right next door. We lived in the house next door to the nursing home. It was one of the biggest nursing homes in Tasmania, privately run nursing homes in Tasmania. Um, and yeah, mum was the matron and dad was the office administrator. And um, uh, we just lived a life. They would, we would get a lot of benefits out of it. <laughs> what kind of benefits are we talking about? <laughs> As young men, we, we food was was quite quite high on the agenda for us. Lots of food, so we we uh, we would get lots of food out of 
uh, leftovers. And I actually would be pretty happy with that, to be honest, because sometimes you know, as a kid growing up, I always used to run out of food because <laughs> we eat too much. <laughs> well, when you're in your teens, especially, you know, you're, we all eat, as men, we all eat a lot. I know my, I watched my son eat, eat, just open the fridge door and there wasn't enough in there, he would growl and we would do the same as the young men. So. <laughs> Growing up with the nursing home as an integral part of his family life, Fidel witnessed the natural cycle of life and death among elderly residents. We saw all of that um, because mum and dad would talk about talk talk about the business and you know the day to day things went over the dinner table with us and between it themselves and we would all hear. Um, one of the things it's it's quite unique, I, well, maybe not unique really, but it's it was interesting phenomenon in that this every time the seasons changed, there would be people passing away. It was like when we went into winter, there'd be there'd be a number of passing, and then we go into spring, and then and, you know, and so on. And those, it was interesting how the seasons, the change of seasons, it just seemed to, that's something I noticed as a kid. When I heard about elderly passing away, it was like every time there's a real seasonal change. Maybe it was a change of temperature or something and, and, and as we get older, we can't adapt because I'm finding, I'm finding the same thing. I mean, not that I'm older or anything at this point in time, I'm older, but I am starting to notice the cold a lot more than I used to with the um, <laughs> change in temperature so quickly. And, and being very cold down in Tasmania, it was, it was, and I like, I prefer Queensland because Queensland is a lot warmer and I enjoy the winters here very much. Fedal recently lent a hand at his parents' nursing home tackling everything from simple jaws to daring maintenance projects. We did a little bit of both actually, probably a little bit of working in the business in the sense that we would go and work in the kitchen and wash dishes and, and the like um, and for a bit of pocket, big bit of pocket money, yeah, because there was 80, 80 residents there so there's a lot of dishes to clean. Especially when you had six kids, it's not bad to have extra hands. And we would do maintenance around the nursing home. I'm, I know as a kid I would be up on the roof painting the roofs. Wow. Dadded by paint, and we'd be up there painting it. So, and that would like two, two and a half, three-story buildings, and you're up there uh, just with ropes, no scaffolding back in those days, no, no scaffolding at all, just, just on tennis in, in our sand shoes, and just walking on the roof. Let's just hope work, work comp don't hear about this. <laughs> yeah, that was, it was, it was a long time ago now. So. <laughs> That is insane. Wow. I mean, I, I, I kind of do remember, yeah, growing up as a kid, I did things similar to you. Dad would just hand me a brush, you know, just go paint that or get a shovel and just dig up that saw. I'm like, Dad, no, I don't have to do this. But it's actually really good training, you know, especially at a young age because you learn so many different things because now I know how to do all this stuff. I can do it myself. Yeah, we did. We did it all. We would we would lay bricks. We would pour concrete. We would do all sorts of things as we needed to. And, um, and we learned we learned as we went. Stay tuned for what's coming up after the break as he unveils how his dislike for school led him down some daring situations that occasionally land him in trouble. I went through to did year 11, uh, hated that, absolutely hated, hated school, uh, got into a lot of trouble. I would, I would always be down the pub every second day um, having beers instead of being in, in class. His story about attaining an apprenticeship with his uncle and his extensive years working in this field spent four years becoming an apprentice and um, after I finished my apprenticeship then I went out and just contracted contracted and built houses and um, 
just framed up. And he reflects on his extensive career in the corporate world and the enjoyable experiences he encountered. So uh, that was really an interesting, interesting career. I think I, I loved it, and I love working for these big companies. It was a real enjoyable time. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Sham, and you're listening to Property Investory. Despite enjoying the company of his friends, Fidel did not find school to be enjoyable. He believed that his insatiable appetite for learning diverse skills wasn't adequately nourished within the confines of the traditional education system. I enjoyed the people and, and my friends at school. I didn't enjoy learning. I hated the I hated the education side of it. <laughs> the teachers. Uh, I always had trouble with my teachers. They were always uh, pushing me too hard. Well, I thought they were pushing me too hard, but obviously they weren't. But schools made for some people. I, I think that the school system only teaches you to just be going out to do an industrial type of job. Basically, it's just an industrialized system where it teaches you only one skill, and then you just go out and do that. Whereas I think for me and, and yourself, I think we, we're pretty much entrepreneurs. We like to learn as much as we can. I like to learn all all, all the trades. I, one of the things that I did with my uncles and my and when I went out and did a little bit of work on my own and contracting basis, I would do everything. I would be, I'd lay tiles, I would do paving, I would concreting, I would bricklaying, painting, um, even electrical and plumbing I would do. So and I would do it all if I needed to and where I needed to. Because it, it's a, it's a great, they're great skills to have. And so after I guess um, going to primary school, did you move on to secondary education or or further, or did you just go straight into the apprenticeship? I did. I went on to into high school, um, finished year ten, then did uh, well in Hobart. It had matriculation, which was year eleven and twelve. So I went through and did year eleven. Um, hated that. Absolutely hated. Hated school. Uh, got into a lot of trouble. I would I would always be down the pub every second day um, having beers instead of being in, in class. Um, and so I was always getting in trouble. Uh, fortunately, my parents used to go to Holland a lot at that time. So when when I got caught, they weren't around to, to find out about it. <laughs> so what have you been up to, son? Oh, yeah, just been going to school. <laughs> I used to have to lie, lie a little bit when uh, they say, my parents don't mind. They're, they're, they're overseas at the moment. They don't care what I'm doing, so. <laughs> which they would have done. They would have gotten a lot of trouble. But Dissatisfied with the conventional school system, Fidel enthusiastically embarked on an apprenticeship with his uncle's construction company. Upon completing his apprenticeship, he delved further into the field, undertaking noteworthy projects. I didn't like school, so I, instead of going on to year 12, I went and um, got myself an apprenticeship with my uncles in their construction company. Um, I spent four years becoming an apprentice and... Um, after I finished my apprenticeship, then I went out and just contracted, contracted and built houses and um, just framed up and did a bit of commercial work. I went and contracted back to my uncles on on uh, there's a big project down on the in Hunter Hunter uh, Wharves down in Hobart on the wharf, a uh, university building, and we put five acres of tongue and groove flooring down myself and my mate. Wow. Yeah, it was a massive job, but we just yeah, and then. Then we built all these um, steel frame walls everywhere uh, in there as well. So it was a great job, really good. And we spent maybe a year there, maybe a year doing that. So it was it was pretty big. Fidel's apprenticeship specialised in carpentry and joinery. 
but his determination led him to develop a wide range of construction skills. This versatility enabled him to handle various projects and still remains willing to roll up his sleeves when needed. I did a lot because I, I pushed myself to do a lot. I, I, I reached out and did it, um, but the apprenticeship was purely carpentry and joinery. So with that, I can build a house, build a cupboards, build kitchen cupboards. I built When I built my first home, I did all of that myself. Um, when I built my own, did all my own um, kitchens and laundries and ensuite bathrooms, I built everything myself by my hand. Wow. And even laying the bricks and everything on the outside and the roof. Didn't do that this time. I, I actually, because I didn't have time, I had I got I got some trades in. So whenever I, yeah. But if I need to bring up bring up a barbecue, I'll bring it up myself. Um, but when it when it's a big job, I'll, I'll bring the trades in who are more experienced than me. But I can do the little bits and pieces of, of these other trades. This versatility has allowed him to tackle a wide range of projects and has even seen him rolling up his sleeves and getting his hands dirty when necessary. Even now, I've, just on a project recently, I would jump in the trench and, and clean it out and lay pipe um, for, for the plumbers on the job because I needed it done and I wanted it done on that day um, um, and I jumped in and helped out. I don't, I'm happy to get in and get dirty if I need to. At my age, I don't like to do it all anymore. I know, similar to my dad, that dad's the same thing. He just recently had uh, alfresco done at the back of his um, house and because uh, there was a bit of a delay from getting the plumber in, so he's just exactly the same as you. He actually laid all the pipes out, he knows how to do it and then when the plumber came, he, he pretty much just put on the taps and then the electrician came straight away the, the next day and got it all done. Otherwise, he would have wasted another two more weeks waiting for those guys. So, you just have to sometimes just get in and get dirty and get it done. Got to do the work. Some things have to happen. I mean, there was a one job um, about two, three years ago, one of my first projects. Um, there was very steep um, block of land, and I had to put a, dry, a, a, a stormwater line up up that, and I had to dig eight eight meters of trench on my own by hand. I couldn't get a machine up there to do it because it was I couldn't bring a big enough machine in because it was very tight tight road into it, and so I had to pick get the pick and shovel and do it by hand. I will do anything if I need to to make it happen. Yeah, that's great. It's a good work ethic that you've um, got and I think you're probably going to be passing and engraving that to, to, your, to your kids in the future. You do what you have to do to make it work. After honing his carpentry skills through apprenticeship and contracting in Tasmania's chilly conditions, Fidel ventured into Queensland where he embarked on a variety of different projects. It was just so cold. I was, I mean, I've been in the building industry. I worked for my uncles down in Tasmania. They've got a, they had a construction company there. So I did my apprenticeship as a carpenter and joiner down there and uh, and I did a lot of contracting, building houses and the like down in Tasmania and um, it was it was a great time um, and then I came I moved to Queensland and, and got into site management uh, for three-storey walk-ups and nursing homes and different building projects here. When he relocated to sunny Queensland, he initially ventured into trade and site management roles. However, a remarkable transition marked the beginning of his dynamic and prosperous journey with an American company. I moved to Queensland in 92 um, and then I started working in Queensland um, as, as I did a bit of trade work here, carpentry work, restaurants, um, fit outs, restaurant fit outs and then I got site managers roles. Uh, managing construction projects, three-storey walk-ups as a nursing home that I was managing. Um, and then then I got a job um, 
as as a uh, with a with an American company, um, Bechtel, um, and joined joined them. Um, and my my ex-wife, her her cousin's husband worked there, so we were chatting, and yeah, I, I ended up getting a job there and um, travelled to to um, Gladstone and worked on a on a smelter upgrade there as a contracts administrator. So I, I went from site management into into contracts admin and and procurement. Um, and then I spent the next 18, 20 years doing that. Um, 20 years, 20 years, yeah. I was 90, 95 I joined and then 2010 or 2000, no, 2018 I got out of that. So a long time. What attracted you to stay there? It was the corporate world and it was it was, it was was good fun. Not with just with Bechtel. I joined, I was spent quite a long time with them and then um, I went travel the world with them to different countries went into Peru, Saudi Arabia and different places and then um, worked my way up to management roles in, in contracts and procurement. Um, and then then I got a job uh, with Sinclair Knight Mers. Um, they're an Australian engineering organisation and I've become the global manager for them for contracts and procurement. Oh, okay, great. So there's more or so still within the construction industry basically just all around the world. <laughs> Yeah, just and then specialising in sourcing and, and commercial contracts, so sourcing materials and equipment from around the world. Interesting, very interesting uh, role, the procurement side of things, buying materials from all over the world, making sure that it's fabricated uh, to a high quality and then shipped uh, onto into very remote sites in different locations around the world. So uh, that was really an interesting, interesting career. I think I, I loved it and I love working for these big companies it was a real enjoyable time, but in the end, like you know, I got tired of it. I think, and I needed I needed to go back out and work for myself. During this time, one of Vidal's crucial responsibilities was managing the contract process for builders and construction firms participating in their projects. He provides insights into the intricate world of contracting, acknowledging that when he first assumed this role. He liked the basic knowledge of turning on his computer. Let's, uh, the first project that I worked on was the uh, Boyne Smelter Line 3 upgrade. Uh, that was with Bechtel and I walked in there as, as a contracts administrator. Mind you, I walked in there and I had no idea how to turn the computer on. Didn't even know where the on off button was. I sat down and had no idea what I was going to do or how I was going to do it. I just bluffed my way in and, and then I had to ask someone how to turn the computer on. And they all looked at me and went, what the is here? Um, I learned very quickly. Sometimes you have to, don't you? <laughs> you do, you do. I have to, yeah. Go act the part. <laughs> and look, for someone who walked in not knowing a thing about what I was going to do, I ended up becoming a global manager for the role. So in another, another organization. So I think I did pretty well out of it. You did, you did, absolutely. So what I did there, just to go back onto your question, I would... Um, bring together all of the all of the technical and commercial aspects of, of a of a contract for for a builder a construction company to come in and do a particular uh, section of the work of a project. So the engineers would write the scopes of work and specifications and do the design engineering design work. Um, there'll be other parts of the safety, there's industrial relations. I'll bring all of those aspects of a contract together um, and then form, formulate the contract into a into one total document, um, put it all together, and then send it out to for tender. 
to different construction companies. Yes. All tier one constructors. Um, and then I would uh, arrange to get the tenders in or receive the tenders and then distribute the sections out to the different departments for their reviews and coordinate all the reviews of the of the tenders and, and then select a, um, a preferred tenderer. Uh, and then I would award the contract um, to, to, to the preferred contractor. Uh, and after that, I would administer that contract through to completion. Wow. So it's very similar, you know, because when, when you just told me that process, it's very similar to development. <laughs> you go out, you go, you go and find a builder, you basically tender it out. And then from there, you know, once you've got the, the contract, then you basically manage the whole process all the way to the end. Yeah, you, you do. You're right, right through to the end. And so that's for, that's for services, construction services. And then when, you, when it comes to um, equipment and materials, because these are big engineering, heavy engineering projects, there's lots of equipment and services needed, lots of specialist services. So a lot of different styles of contracts uh, with different scopes. Fidel delves into complexities of the procurement process, emphasizing the critical need for precision and attention to detail in its execution. The procurement side of things, we'd buy equipment, say from China, for example, buy big heavy equipment from China. But then we wouldn't, you can't just send a contract over there and expect them to build something the way you need them to. Um, and that's any country, for example. I had something built in New Zealand that came out terrible because we didn't have the right quality control in there. So we had to, so you have to put quality control in every country, uh, just different levels of quality control depending on the country. Um, and then you, there are people that then you have to ship it. Then we, then we pick it up and we transport it onto a boat, ship it to another country where it's going to be installed, and then we take it to, to the location. And, and some of those places um, are very, uh, very dangerous and difficult to get to. Very interesting. Wow. I can see, you know, it's not just a one-man person kind of thing that you got to do here. You require so many moving parts, so many people that you're involved in to be able to, it's sort of like this massive factory chain that you've just got to maintain and keep moving. Yeah, it's a massive coordination role um, across it. And there's a lot of people involved in these big projects and some really clever people in there. I'm, I was just one person in, a, in, in hundreds doing, doing a job. Vidal shares a thrilling and demanding experience from his time at the company where he managed a complex copper mine construction project in the mountains of Peru where he had to navigate health challenges and guards with machine guns. It was great. You know, one of, one of the most challenging roles I've ever had was one in, in Peru, where um, and that was that was challenging because it was so high up in the mountains. Five thousand meters up there, we were building a um, a copper mine, new copper mine, and that was very interesting. Um, tunneling under mountains, draining draining lakes, and um, just it was really really super interesting place to be very hard to to uh, to to live and work in that environment um i found myself in in the hospital a couple of times up there because i was you know just or just found myself dehydrated and suffering from altitude sickness so yeah it was in a very interesting place and worried about well, not worried you you there was guards on horseback with machine guns walking around the site keeping all of the, the local um, thieves away and yeah I guess that's what happens in sort of remote uh, different countries would you consider Peru sort of in a third world country in that sense I would say they would have been it was I've never seen it was my first taste of real poverty when I w drove out of Lima up to the mountains a 10-hour drive from the airport up to the mountain 
Um, and that was, I saw my first real massive slums that I've never, never witnessed before. So as a, as a pretty fresh Australian coming out and seeing that, that really, really blew me away. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> when you see that kind of stuff, it really gets you to appreciate and, and realize, you know, how fortunate we are. We live in one of the luckiest countries in the world, I mean, from my experience. Bill Federal's story continues in the next episode of Property Investory. He shares the exhilarating story of how he traded in his corporate career for the thrilling world of property development. I started losing the joy in, in the corporate world. I, I was losing the, the joy of the job. He shares the initial challenges and formidable hurdles he confronted at the outset of his property journey where he rolled up his sleeves to achieve success. So I had to cut it on the boundary line. And with a chainsaw, and I was up there for three days cutting cutting the, the tree stump uh, with a chainsaw. He generously imparts the invaluable lessons and insights he has gleaned during his property journey, offering a guiding light to empower others on their path to success. Don't rush it, just manage. Make sure you, you do what you can manage. And that's next time on Property Investory.